Welcome to the History Guy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to stories of lesser-known historical events told by Lance Geiger, also known as the History Guy on YouTube. I'm Josh, your host, a writer for the channel and eldest son of the History Guy. We tell all kinds of stories about history, from the modern era to the ancient past, so you never know what we're going to talk about next. One thing you can be sure of, it is history that deserves to be remembered. This episode of the History Guy Podcast is brought to you by Magellan TV a new kind of streaming service aiming to bring you the best documentaries from around the world. On today's episode, we are talking about the War Before the War, or the period of World War II when war had often not officially commenced but was arguably already underway. First, the History Guy will talk about the Undeclared War, and incidents between the U.S. and Germany before Pearl Harbor. Then, he will talk about the occupation of Iceland, an officially neutral country that the United Kingdom occupied in a move to prevent Germany from securing the strategically vital island. Finally, the history I will tell the story of several incidents of the Phony War, the period between Hitler's invasion of Poland and the commencement of actual hostilities on the Western Front. Without further ado, let me introduce the history guy. Germany declared war on the United States on December 11th, 1941, and in many ways that seen as sort of an unavoidable response to the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, but the German declaration of war didn't actually mention the Japanese at all. Instead, it listed three United States destroyers, the USS Greer, the USS Kearney, and the USS Reuben James, as reasons that Germany was going to war with the United States. Those three ships, and what at the time were called incidents represent a nearly forgotten part of U.S. history, and that is the undeclared war that came before the Second World War. It is history that deserves to be remembered. By the mid-1930s, war clouds were already on the horizon throughout the world. In the United States, the prevailing mood was isolationism and non-interventionism. The U.S. involvement in World War I had been costly, and the national attitude, and the attitudes of powerful members of Congress, was that the U.S. must be prevented from being dragged into another European war. The Congress passed Neutrality Acts, starting in 1935, intended to prevent the nation trading with powers at war. But the 1930s, starting with the Italian invasion of Ethiopia in October 1935, would test the nation's ability to remain neutral in a time of conflict. The slow drift towards war accelerated after the September 1st, 1939 German invasion of Poland. The invasion, ostensibly predicated over a dispute regarding the free city of Danzig, had sparked a broader war. France and Britain had joined military agreements with Poland, largely in an attempt to force a diplomatic solution. But when diplomacy failed and Germany invaded, both were obliged to enter the war. Roosevelt understood that the outbreak of war would include, as it had in World War I, a conflict over shipping in the Atlantic. Despite the isolationist attitude at home, Roosevelt wanted to help Britain as much as possible, without outright violating neutrality. On September 5th, Roosevelt announced an air and sea neutrality patrol. He claimed that the intent of the patrol was to monitor the actions of belligerent ships, and October 7th was joined by the foreign ministers of the American Republics in what was called the Panama Declaration, which designated a patrol zone that extended between two and 300 miles from the shores of North and South America. The patrolling was done by a task force that included both the Navy and the Coast Guard. If the patrols sighted a U-boat, they were not allowed to attack, but they could monitor and radio its location to British and Canadian forces. In addition, Roosevelt convinced Congress to amend the Neutrality Act to allow so-called cash-and-carry sales. This provision allowed the sale of goods to a belligerent nation so long as they picked them up from an American port and transported them themselves. 
In theory, this allowed sales to both sides without threatening neutrality, but as Britain had a large enough navy to prevent German trade, the provision in practice only helped the Allies. U.S. neutrality was looking less and less neutral. The boundary was further tested in September 1940, when Roosevelt signed an executive agreement with Britain called Destroyers for Bases. The agreement traded 50 older U.S. destroyers to the British in exchange for land rights on certain British possessions. The destroyers taken from a reserve fleet were outdated, they were in poor repair, and of little use in the ongoing battle to protect shipping in the Atlantic. In fact, Churchill saw them as virtually useless, but agreed to the deal since he knew that U.S. support was needed after France had fallen to Germany in June. The base's rights supposedly enhanced U.S. defense, but the agreement really allowed the U.S. to take up some defensive responsibilities for places like the Bahamas, freeing Britain to redeploy troops to the war, as well as to allow the U.S. to finance base improvements like airfields that could then be used by the British. Again, Roosevelt was overtly helping the Allies while still pretending neutrality. But cash and carry was pressing its limits. As Britain, who with its empire was bearing the weight of the conflict after the fall of France, was running short of assets that could be used to provide the cash. Churchill sent a 15-page letter to Roosevelt, which was ironically delivered on December 7, 1940, pressing for help. U.S. opinion was slowly shifting, but not to the point of supporting war. However, the nation was becoming more positively disposed towards Britain. Providing aid was seen as a way to fund the war against Germany without having to fight it ourselves. In March, FDR signed the bill that was popularly called Lend-Lease. The act allowed the U.S. to provide billions in aid, initially to Britain and China, making the U.S. an indirect participant in the war. Lend-Lease was extended to the Soviet Union after Germany invaded on June 22nd. As the Lend-Lease aid represented a substantial investment, Roosevelt then had a reason to extend the neutrality patrol to protect that investment. In July, the U.S. agreed to take over the occupation of Iceland, an agreement that required a formal request from the government of Iceland, which again allowed a redeployment of British troops, but also further extended the U.S. zone in the Atlantic. Eventually, the zone for the neutrality patrol extended three-quarters of the way across the Atlantic. While technically, under the terms of the neutrality treaty, U.S. forces were not allowed to attack Axis forces without being shot at first, the U.S. was in practice doing convoy escort, a crass violation of neutrality. The U.S. was, in essence, fighting an undeclared war. On April 10th, the Gleaves-class destroyer USS Niblack was picking up survivors from a Dutch ship that had been sunk by a U-boat when it got a sound contact that suggested that a submarine was, according to the action report, rapidly approaching a position for attack. The Niblack released a depth charge over the target. That attack appears to have been the first action between the United States and German forces in the Second World War, eight months before war was officially declared. U.S. public support had significantly shifted by mid-1941. A Gallup poll showed more than two-thirds thought it was more important that Germany be defeated than that the U.S. stay out of the war. U.S. merchant vessels were being attacked, both under U.S. and Panamanian flags, and U.S. warships were escorting convoys, convoys through combat zones. It was only a matter of time before U.S. warships found themselves in the fray. On September 4, 1941, the USS Greer, a Wicks-class destroyer, was carrying mail and passengers to Iceland when it was informed by a British plane that a suspected U-boat was operating in the area. The submarine was the U-652. Following the terms of the neutrality patrol, the Greer located the submarine using sonar and broadcast its location to British and Canadian units, but did not attack. The Greer pursued the submarine for nearly three hours when, according to the U.S. Navy, the U-652 made a torpedo attack upon the Greer which detected the torpedo launched by sonar. 
The torpedoes missed, and the Greer then proceeded to attack the submarine with depth charges. While the Navy initially said the outcome was undetermined, the U-652 survived, fought on until June of 1942. Roosevelt described what was called the Greer Incident as an unprovoked attack, saying in a broadcast on September 11th, I tell you the blunt fact that the German submarine fired first upon this American destroyer without warning with the deliberate design to sink her. He even declared the attack an act of piracy, because don't all great stories involve pirates? The German response was to claim that the Greer attacked with depth charges first and that the submarine fired in self-defense. It's still not proven who fired first. It's possible that the U-652 mistook depth charges dropped from a British plane as coming from the Greer, but as critics noted at the time, the Greer had pursued the submarine for nearly three hours before the torpedo attack, something which would normally be considered a hostile act. Still, the Greer incident led Roosevelt to declare a new policy called shoot on sight. He opined, when you see a rattlesnake poised to strike, you do not wait until he has struck before you crush him. Under the new policy, if German or Italian warships were sighted in waters we deem necessary for our defense, the U.S. ships would attack them. The following month, the USS Kearney, a Benson Livermore-class destroyer, was docked at Reykjavik when a nearby British convoy was attacked by a wolf pack of German U-boats. On October 17th, the Kearney and three other destroyers responded, and following the shoot-on-sight rules, attacked the submarines with depth charges. During the fight, the U-658 fired a spread of three torpedoes at Kearney, one striking her amidships. While the crew was able to control the flooding and withdraw, 11 crew were killed and 22 injured. These were American combat casualties, nearly two months before the U.S. officially entered the war. Ten days later, Roosevelt addressed the nation by radio on Navy Day. He said, We have wished to avoid shooting, but the shooting has started, and history has recorded who fired the first shot. In the long run, however, all that will matter is who fired the last shot. America has been attacked. The USS Kearney is not just a Navy ship. She belongs to every man, woman, and child in this nation. Two weeks later, on October 31st, the Clemson-class destroyer USS Reuben James was escorting a convoy when they got a high-frequency direction-finding, or Hofduff, contact indicating a German submarine. The Reuben James moved to put herself between the suspected U-boat and the convoy and was struck by a torpedo fired by U-552, and apparently intended for one of the convoy's ships. The torpedo de detonated the ship's forward magazine, blowing the bow off the ship. Chief Petty Officer William Bergstresser told the St. Petersburg Times, I went topside and found that the whole forward part of the ship, including the bridge, was completely demolished and carried away. The bow section sank immediately. The stern section sank five minutes later. 100 members of the crew were killed, including all of the ship's officers. Reuben James was the first U.S. Navy ship sunk by hostile action in the European theater in World War II, and the worst single U.S. naval disaster since the sinking of the battleship Maine in 1898. The sinking starkly represented the fact that the Battle of the Atlantic was being fought even though war had not been declared. The New York Times noted that the sinking brushes away the last possible doubt that the United States and Germany are now at open war in the Atlantic. Folk singer Woody Guthrie immortalized the sinking in a song released in 1942. Have you heard of a ship called the Good Reuben James, manned by hard fighting men of both honor and fame? She flew the stars and stripes of the land of the free, but tonight she's in her grave at the bottom of the sea. Tell me, what were their names? Tell me, what were their names? Did you have a friend on the good Reuben James? The sinking of the Reuben James 
emboldened those members of Congress that were pressing for war. Texas Senator Tom Connolly said, this unjustified and dastardly sinking must be avenged. But the isolationists blamed Roosevelt. Vermont Senator George Aiken said that Roosevelt was personally responsible for the casualties. The sinking of the Reuben James might well have been that event that shifted public opinion and allowed FDR to take us to war, but the Japanese took away any need for that discussion when they bombed Pearl Harbor on December 7th. Still, the incidents with the Greer, Kearney, and Reuben James were a causes belly for Germany. In their declaration of war against the United States on December 11th, German Foreign Minister Ribbentrop cited the shots fired by the three destroyers as open military acts of aggression and argued that the government of the United States has thereby virtually created state of war. And of course, the Germans were absolutely right. The neutrality patrol was never neutral. FDR always intended to be go as far towards intervention as the public would allow without destroying this fiction of neutrality. But FDR also argued that the United States would be in desperate shape if England were to fall and the Axis were to take all of Europe and Asia, and there seems to be a fair point of discussion there. Perhaps the question shouldn't be was, was this undeclared war neutral? Because obviously it wasn't. The question was, was neutrality ever a viable option? And questions like that will keep historians busy for as long as we study history. But what is not a question is that the casualties of this undeclared war deserve to be remembered. Now, the History Guy will talk about the Allied occupation of Iceland, which began in 1940. Iceland is an island in the North Atlantic of approximately 103,000 square kilometers. Its population of about 350,000 people today makes it the most sparsely populated nation in Europe. And in 1940, its population was just one-third that number. Iceland had gained independence from Denmark in 1918 through the Danish-Icelandic Act of Union. In the act, the two states had formed a personal union, meaning that Iceland recognized the king of Denmark, but Iceland gained full control of state affairs. Iceland controlled its internal business and declared neutrality, but shared defense and foreign affairs as well as the monarch. Most of the nation's population was engaged in farming or fishing, and they had a small coast guard, no standing army. Its position was, however, strategic, sitting in the North Atlantic would be a perfect location for air and naval bases to either protect or to interdict trade between Europe and the United States. At the outbreak of the Second World War, Britain imposed export controls on Icelandic exports to Germany as part of its blockade, further depressing Iceland's economy, which had been hit hard during the Great Depression. Britain, however, offered Iceland assistance and sought to make them an ally and a belligerent that would allow Britain to not only operate bases from Iceland, but also to prepare a defense against any German attempt to take the island. But Iceland refused, instead choosing, as did Denmark, to remain neutral, disallowing visits by military vessels and aircraft of the belligerents. Germany invaded Denmark April 9, 1940, as a prelude to their invasion of Norway. Outmatched, the Danish armed forces were only able to resist for a brief battle. The German ground campaign lasted only six hours, and the Danish government capitulated for fear that resistance would cause the Germans to bomb the capital of Copenhagen. The invasion demonstrated that Hitler did not feel the need to respect neutrality. Despite the conquest of Norway, Denmark continued to affirm both their independence and their neutrality. This put Great Britain in an awkward position, as they were now considering invading Iceland in order to prevent Germany from doing the same. The fear was not unfounded. After the conquest of Denmark and Norway, German Admiral Erik Raeder had presented a plan to invade Iceland, called Operation Icarus. Just as concerning to the British, the German presence in Iceland had increased during the 1930s. The German diplomatic delegation had grown, and trade between the nations had increased. 
Given the lack of a strong defense force, it was even conceivable that the Germans already in Iceland might be enough to stage a coup. In April, Britain occupied the Faroe Islands, a small group of islands halfway between Norway and Iceland that were a county of Denmark, under the pretense of protecting the islands from German invasion. The government in the Faroe Islands protested, but acquiesced to the British occupation under the agreement that the British would not interfere with their internal affairs. In the end, Britain didn't need to fear a German invasion of Iceland. While Germany determined that it might be possible to take the island, they also determined that they couldn't defend it against the Royal Navy, and so that any garrison there would be cut off. At the time, Hitler was still placing his hopes in a negotiated peace with Great Britain. But unaware of Germany's plans, Britain decided to occupy Iceland. Churchill was even concerned that further negotiations with Iceland could call the Germans to act, and so on May 6th, the War Cabinet approved an expedition. The operation had to be prepared quickly, so the unit involved, the 2nd Royal Marines, did not have adequate time to prepare, and many of the troops were not conditioned for sea travel. Traveling in cramped conditions aboard the cruisers HMS Berwick and Glasgow, accompanied by destroyers HMS Fearless and Fortune, many of the Marines became seasick, and one of the new recruitees committed suicide. The British plan, codenamed Operation Fork, called for a surprise, but confused orders meant that a supermarine walrus float plane launched by HMS Berwick to scout for German submarines flew over the capital of Reykjavik, alerting the Icelandic government. They dispatched their small force of police officers with orders to tell the British that they were in violation of Icelandic neutrality. The vanguard of the British force, 400 marines aboard HMS Fearless, arrived at the port. The situation could have been tense, even though the Icelandic force was greatly outnumbered. However, there was no confrontation. The British consul asked the Icelandic police to hold back the crowd so that the Marines could disembark, and they complied. The British moved quickly to capture the Germans that they knew were on the island. The German consul complained that Iceland was a neutral state, and was promptly informed that Denmark and Norway had been neutral states as well. Iceland protested and officially maintained a position of neutrality. However, they de facto cooperated with the British occupiers, who promised favorable business agreements, non-interference in Icelandic affairs, and the withdrawal of all forces at the end of the war, as well as to pay compensation for any damages. In addition, the British agreed to hire no more than 2,200 Icelandic civilians, so as not to disrupt the island's farming and fishing industries. The island was occupied by British and Canadian forces, but with troops needed elsewhere, Britain asked the United States to take over the occupation in June 1941. The change required the agreement of the Icelandic Parliament and occurred six months before Pearl Harbor, and so the U.S., still a neutral nation, occupied neutral Iceland. Iceland actually supported the shift as England's survival in the war was not guaranteed at that point, and they feared an English defeat would result in a German occupation. The U.S. and Britain built bases in Iceland that were used for air and naval patrols that helped to defend the crucial line of supply between America and Canada and Britain and the Soviet Union. It was during the occupation, in May 1944, that Iceland held a referendum that allowed the dissolution of the Union with Denmark and the adoption of a new constitution. Allied forces vacated Iceland in 1947, but U.S. forces were back in 1951 to occupy a base after Iceland joined the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. The occupation of Iceland during the Second World War is still controversial among Icelanders. The United States and Britain built things like roads, bridges, ports, hospitals, and airports. And because there was so much economic development due to the war, some Icelanders refer to the war as the Blessed War. But others begrudge the insult to the nation's sovereignty, as well as the impacts on culture that came to an island where, at some times, the occupying forces represented fully a quarter of the population. Now's the part of the episode where we get to chat with the history guy. 
about what we just heard, what we're going to hear, and some unique stuff that you only get to hear about on the podcast. I think most people know that FDR was preparing for war before the U.S. actually entered after Pearl Harbor, but wow, <laughs> the extent to which we were already fighting war with Germany is surprising. To, to what extent did the public know that we were doing some of these things? I, you know, I think, that, uh, I think that Roosevelt walked a fine line. I mean, there were people who wanted to go to war, and there were people who very much didn't want to go to war. And I think he carefully walked a line where the people that were pushing for war knew what was going on, and the people who were not didn't really know what was going on. Yeah, that's, that's why I say I don't think that most of the public was aware, though, that we were really putting troops at risk until, uh, until the Reuben James. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because, I, I mean, I know that FDR kind of had clearly decided that we were going to have to enter this war at some point and had was pushing for something. We, you, you talk about the fact in the episode that it, you really can't call this the actions neutral, but it's clear to some extent that they were, they were aggressive. I, I see where Germany was saying that these were acts of war. Some of this stuff really was. Yeah, it's interesting that when we went to war, uh, we did not state any of this as a Kessler's belly, but Germany did. Uh, and that says something about it. But I, you can argue over whether FDR really had a choice uh, or whether we really had to be engaged at that point. I mean, they were literally sinking ships right outside American waters in sight of American warships. Uh, but it, it's certainly clear that this was agitating for war, that he was trying to push us in a direction that would take us to where he thought we were inevitably going. Yeah, and, and that he was looking for something. He knew that he was putting people's lives in danger. And mm -hmm. I think he must have known, or at least believed, that he was doing it for a good reason. But he was looking for a way to upset to upset the public. Well, yeah, he was, he was looking to create outrage in order to give an excuse to get into a shooting war. And that's, that's clearly what we were doing. I mean, when your destroyer is following the German submarine, literally just following it along, pinging it, and then pointing it out to uh, British and Canadian ships and planes that are attacking it, yeah, that's war. I mean, you're, you're at war. So he was trying to be at war without being at war with the goal of causing some sort of action that would allow him to be at war. And whether that was, you know, something where he had a choice or whether the, you know, whether there was another option, that's a different question. But it's pretty clear at this point that what he's looking for is to precipitate a war through these actions. So one, one question might be, if, if not for Pearl Harbor, which of course makes kind of the question of a lot of this stuff moot, would this have, would this event have brought us into the war eventually or were we needing something bigger? Yeah, I, I, it clearly it hadn't already. I mean, it's yeah. hard to say, you know, absent Pearl Harbor, because Pearl Harbor kind of took away all question. But I mean, the fact is, after the Japanese attacked us at Pearl Harbor, we immediately declared war on Germany. So it's clear that he was, he was itching for the trigger and that Pearl Harbor, you know, it didn't require that we went to war with Germany. Actually, Germany declared war on us. But I mean, he knew that going to war with Japan meant going to war with Germany. Uh, so I, I think... No, I don't think that this would have been enough to make it a shooting war. But I think that we would have continued doing things like this until we moved that direction. He, I he think would have found personally, a way. I think, yeah, I think war was inevitable. I think FDR, of course, had already chosen that he was coming in on the side of the Allies, that he couldn't come on inside of Germany. I think he'd realized that neutrality was unrealistic for a number of reasons. Uh, and so I think that eventually, you know, we were going to get drawn into war. But if it happens in a way that, you know, uh, the, especially the, uh, the peaceniks or the isolationists uh, really can't blame it on FDR, that's a different story, right? So it actually turns out that when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, that is exactly the sort of thing that was needed to really push the nation into action where you really could 
wouldn't say that it was FDR. And you know that's why that argument came years later that he knew about Pearl Harbor and he didn't stop it because he knew he needed that. There's, there's you know different historical arguments on that. I, I don't think it's overly compelling that he knew about it, but it, it really does come down to uh, 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 Pearl Harbor ended up being a much more effective way to get his way than to continue kind of poking Germany until they finally, you know, did something that we couldn't, we couldn't, you know, walk away from. Although I imagine, I mean, eventually you could have poked Germany enough, but that's, yeah, it's, it's clear that there was looking for a Cassus Belli, and though this didn't end up being it for us, I think it's really interesting that it historically that ends up being what it was for Germany, because I don't think people realize that at all. Yeah, it's interesting because could Hitler have chosen differently? Could Hitler have, have taken the U.S. declaration of war against Japan and and not declared war and tried to continue to push for peace and force the United States uh, to continue to have to do something until, until they could get an excuse to attack Europe? Uh, you know, I don't know. But uh, it is interesting because certainly Germany said, you're, you're chasing our submarines, you know, you, you're already at war, so fine, we'll declare war on you. But I mean, it's, it's uh, an interesting question to say, could Germany have avoided that and and then left FDR in a position where he had a reason to go to war with Japan, but still didn't have a reason to go to war with Germany. That's uh, that's a really interesting question. I've thought about that one because I've seen some people argue that, you know, Hitler didn't need to declare war on America after that. He, he After Pearl Harbor, he could have uh, kept himself from doing it. And I, I mean, clearly, I guess he didn't want to. But if I mean, if he did, it's there's it was already hard for due to public sentiment at least in part for to convince the the americans to that we should focus on mm -hmm. europe first and i think you know absolutely if, yeah if there's no germany declaration of war then we're focusing more on japan and that that might change somewhat That's... dramatically what goes on in europe yeah, right away, we went to the Europe first doctrine. And right yeah. away, we knew who our allies were. And that suggests that uh, regardless of Pearl Harbor, we already had a plan on what we were going to do and who our allies were going to be. And, and it's if uh, if if Hitler hadn't declared war, if the if the attack on Pearl Harbor did not result automatically in war with Germany, then it might have been a lot harder for FDR to justify, you know, putting our ships at risk, protecting convoys, going to Britain. And I mean, it's, it's really kind of interesting uh, because what happens if he really only had a mandate to fight Japan yeah. uh, and still did not have a mandate to fight Germany? So it's, it's an interesting it's an interesting point in history. But but part of it, and that's kind of what I'm talking about at the end, part of it is that the, the war was such a large event. That even the isolationists, even the people that were upset after uh, the First World War, uh, that really the United States couldn't continue to just pretend that they weren't part of this war, weren't part of world events. And so I, I, I think we were going to end up in the war anyway. Well, in this, I mean, I think this episode, even even though you're you're talking about how FDR is trying to provoke Germany, there's there's some stuff in there that really makes it clear that there was no way for us to remain neutral anyway. Uh, yeah. There. And if, if there, you know, if there was at some point a way for us to remain neutral, we were going to have to make some significant sacrifices. Absolutely. So. Yeah. Same is true in the Pacific. You know, by the way, there's a lot of argument that our oil embargo drove Japan to have no choice but to attack Pearl Harbor because you know, they had to go to South. All those arguments. I mean, uh, in the, the, uh, the Sino-Japanese war going on. Uh, it was pretty clear in the Pacific that, I mean, we couldn't sit it out, that we couldn't just watch and, and you know, uh, and just see where things went and see what happened afterwards. Yeah. And so it might be that our economic you know, measures were intending to try to provoke Japan into something because it might be in the same way that it was in Europe, just this realization that we wanted to be a part of this war. We knew we were going to be eventually that if we, you know, that, that we needed to figure out a way to get into the war, to make a difference, that, that way we could control the peace, that would give us more authority, but it also meant that, you know, we simply saw that this war was coming and and we figured 
that we would be critical to the war. And so we figured we had to get away around the, the natural bent of isolationism in the U.S. And, and find an excuse to enter war. That's an interesting question. And did Roosevelt have that in mind? Did Roosevelt have that in mind when, you know, when he ran for office? Did, was Roosevelt thinking that? It's hard to say. At what point did we make a decision? Are we going to go to war? And how do we push the people into war? And we've never quite found that. But it certainly feels like when you look in both actions in the Pacific and the Atlantic, at least there was an understanding that uh, war was inevitable at that point by the time we were essentially fighting a war without declaring war. Yeah. And I mean, on that note, I can't imagine that most people today have any idea that America occupied Iceland months before Pearl Harbor. <laughs> and I, it's, well, so, I mean, people still wanted neutrality. It's, I, that that's a point where it's really impossible to argue that we were behaving neutrally. I mean, that was clearly an action. Yes, in support it was clearly the to help the British. But I mean, it's such a bizarre scenario. We weren't at war. Iceland wasn't at war. We didn't want to occupy Iceland. Iceland didn't want to be occupied. And we came up with an agreement where Iceland asked us to occupy <laughs> Iceland in a war that neither one of us had entered yet. And that's, that's just a strange historical event. And yet, I don't think that most Americans realized that that was going on at that time. Yeah, it was a, it was a global war, and we we talk about that with a lot of countries in World War Two, where they in Europe and elsewhere that it was difficult to remain neutral, even for forces. I mean, like Iceland, who was not mm -hmm. as as not in the position of the U.S., where you know you think ah oh, you'll be able to materially affect what the war will. That Iceland didn't have the same strategic goals or anything like that, and yet it's pretty clear that it was going to be impossible for them to remain neutral. Yeah, it's, its strategic position astride the North Atlantic Sea Lane simply made it impossible. Someone had to control that that was that was a participant in the war. But, I mean, honestly, the low countries didn't want to participate in the war. Denmark and Norway didn't want Norway tried and tried to remain neutral, even though it ended up being impossible. Uh, so there, there were lots of countries that didn't want to be a part of this war. They were just in the way. <laughs> Yeah. between the, the major combatants. And that's that's why Belgium and that's why the Netherlands and, and that's why Norway and Denmark, I, I mean, Norway and Denmark had to fall in order to preserve the iron ore that was coming from Sweden, but Sweden managed to maintain neutrality. Yeah. Uh, Sw Switzerland, simply because they're in the middle of the mountains, was able to maintain neutrality, but only a kind of neutrality yeah. because it was a neutrality that was based on they knew they were surrounded by Axis powers and they knew they couldn't take them off or they would get invaded. So, I mean, there, was there were only a few nations that because of their geography were able to somehow maintain some bit of neutrality and even then was kind of controlled and they were still powerfully impacted by the war and there were lots of countries didn't want to be in this war that were drawn into it mexico is another example mexico really uh did not believe in foreign wars they were very much mistrustful of the united states uh and yet uh, the mexican ships sunk in the gulf uh, finally put them in a position that they knew they couldn't stay that was true of much of south america as well there were nations that were trying to remain out of the war that ended up in war and of course you know brazil ended up sending troops into the war uh, because even in South America, you just couldn't maintain neutrality. It was just affecting the world and world commerce and world markets and world oceans just too much for, for nations to stay out. So there wasn't there wasn't a lot of neutrality. In no. the, even even Costa Rica uh, actually declared war during the Second World War. And that's and that's amazing because those are those are places you wouldn't even think. But I, I mean, there was there was actual combat, I think, in a lot of places that people don't think about i mean there was fighting in the middle east and central asia and places that i think people kind of forget about because we, we we essentially have the two main theaters that we think about europe and the pacific but i mean there was fighting all over the place and yeah. it, you're right that you know sweden and switzerland for instance were able to maintain neutrality but it was clearly i mean an axis aligned neutrality yeah it was, was a neutrality that was realistic about the nations around yeah them. 
and 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 others you know Estonia did not want to be in the war Estonia ended up being you know just in the middle of, of Russia and Germany and then when Russia and Germany were allies and then when Russia and Germany were enemies and Estonia just got stomped on all around uh, and, and it wasn't their choice it's just that they were in the way uh, and so yeah I mean there wasn't there weren't, there weren't a lot of places in the world that could could keep neutrality and you're right all around the world in places that you wouldn't necessarily expect that they were still the conflict was was drawing them in so yeah. uh, the, the 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 China Burma India theater which is also thought of as a lesser thought of theater but I mean a massive fighting going on there in a way that's you know Chinese war was the start of World War II before World War II and uh, it, it fighting you know everywhere in the world stuff spread out where you would not have guessed that it would have and even places North and South America end up then being drawn into it so I could the United States have stayed out probably not and if the United States was going to be drawn in at what time did FDR and his administration figure that out and then how much were the actions that came up leading up to the war them either appreciating the reality that we couldn't stay out of war or, or them literally trying to provoke a way to enter the war. I mean, it's it's interesting. I, those questions haven't been fully answered by historians exactly where the administration was on that. But it's pretty clear at the point that we were occupying Iceland uh, and our destroyers were chasing German submarines. Uh, and uh, and we started, say, fortifying Wake Island. I mean, I think we realized that Japan was was not going to be able to uh, you know continue to do what they were doing without eventually coming to conflict with the United States. I think it's pretty clear that in the, in the, in the year prior to the war that uh, we were acting as a nation that knew that was going to war. And if you even go back a little bit farther than that, Carl Vincent, I mean, the, the reason the U.S. Navy was so huge during the Second World War was all uh, appropriations that occurred before the war occurred. That's, I mean, we were putting those ships out much faster than you could have if we didn't start building them until after Pearl Harbor. So we were already, we were already going to war, and these, are, these were just the events that were moving us that direction. Magellan TV is sponsoring this episode, and as we always do in the podcasts, we like to talk about what we've been watching on Magellan TV lately. And I think that this time we were talking a little before the podcast, and we, we actually watched on accident the same the same video. And I think that it makes sense because of how just how interesting this one was. So do you want to talk about that a little bit first? Um, yeah, I mean, we're talking about a, a show called Tobago 1677, which has to do with the, uh, the, the Franco-Dutch War. And uh, efforts to, for by the French to take Tobago uh, from the Dutch, take away all the Dutch colonies in the Caribbean, and it's uh, one of the things I love about this one is that shoot, this is this is very much an episode of the History Guy, and that this is this is almost forgotten history, uh, but it's combining the archaeology, the looking for these sh ships, uh, with the story that was told by the Dutch commander that was there on the island. So it's it's a really fun and interesting story, and it's something that you know as the history, and of course I see forgotten history all the time. It's kind of what I do, uh, and it, but it's the one of these like I I really had no idea I had no idea that there was a significant two different significant battles between Dutch colonists and uh, French uh, ships uh, to try to take away the Dutch colony of Tobago. Those um, colonial fights are really quite interesting, I and mean, it's it's important to understand how those how they all came to connect with, uh, all, I mean, both Caribbean history, European history, world history. French didn't lose as, ma as many ships in the, in, in the fight, but they were damaged badly enough that they still retreated. And so the Dutch ultimately so. successfully defend Tobago in this, in this battle. But I thought the same thing is that this was something that I had not heard of, that I did not know about this fight. Mm -hmm. And then the archaeology of it really is interesting that they're going in and looking at, at these ships and finding, and that kind of is the important stuff that we can learn a lot more about what happened, not just from what yeah. we have historically, but from so, what they can find archaeologically. 
it showed the archaeology, the historiography, along with the history. That was very fascinating. It was fun to do. Uh, it's, I mean, I'm saying it's very much like an episode of the History Guy and that it's forgotten history, but really a, an interesting battle that you probably never heard of and probably didn't know anything about. And so it's it's one of those reasons I love Magellan TV. You find so many different things on Magellan TV. I, last time I was I was looking at one where an elephant befriended a sheep, uh, and uh, so I mean to me it's it's a lot like what we look to do in our channel. It just does it as professional documentarians that are doing full length documentaries. I think it complements with us very well. I'm I'm truly a fan of Magellan TV. Don't get enough time to watch everything I want to watch on Magellan TV, and I've never uh, seen a. a a documentary on Magellan TV that wasn't wasn't a winner. Every single one I've gone to, I'm like, wow, that was really good. Absolutely. And they're always high quality, just like this one. There's always something new to discover. And of course, if you are a listener or watcher of The History Guy, you can go to try.magellantv.com slash history guy and you can get an offer there it'll be sometimes be a free month it'll be something like a money off of an annual membership but you like the history guy and if you like learning about other stuff well beyond just forgotten history then everything you see there will be worth watching next the history guy is going to talk about the phony war the admiral graf spey and the altmark incident there was a period between September of 1939, when France and Britain declared war on Germany over the invasion of Poland, and the spring of 1940, when the Second World War included very little, well, war. In fact, the period was so quiet that it became known as the Phony War. But while the events of that period were overshadowed by the more violent years to come, it's not that nothing happened during that period. Things were happening, particularly at sea with merchant shipping. Things that deserve to be remembered. On September 4th, 1939, a Brazilian steamer came upon a lifeboat. The boat had come from the 5,000-ton British steamer RMS Clement. According to the men in the lifeboat, the Clement had been sunk the day before by a German warship. The crew had abandoned ship, but the ship's captain and chief engineer had been taken aboard the German vessel. On October 22nd, 1939, Captain J. Edwards of the cargo vessel M.V. Trevanyan was off the coast of southwest Africa en route from Fremantle, Australia to Swansea, Wales. Lookout sighted a ship. It was a warship, but it was flying the French tricolor, so the captain was not worried. But the ship ordered him to heave to and make no signals. Sensing that something was wrong, he had the radio man issue a distress call, and at that the ship lowered the French flag and raised a German one. A German boarding party removed the crew of the Trevanyan, and the ship was sunk. Around noon on December 2nd, 1939, the 10,000-ton Blue Star Line steamer Doric Star was some 600 miles from the island of St. Helena, when a heavy shell splashed into the sea less than a hundred yards off. The Doric Star had been outfitted with a four-inch gun at the start of the war for anti-submarine defense, but before they could bring it to bear, the lookout identified the ship shooting at them as a battleship. It would have been suicide to try to fight it with their small gun. A launch came from the attacking vessel with a boarding party, and the crew were given ten minutes to collect life vests, eating utensils, and belongings, and were removed to the German ship. The Doric Star was sunk with a torpedo. They found that the German ship was crowded with other British merchant mariners, all victims of the same German commerce raider. But the next day, they met up with another ship, a German tanker called the Altmark, and many of those merchant mariners were moved to the Altmark, although senior officers of the Doric Star and other vessels, like the captain, the first officer, the chief engineer, were kept aboard the warship. The ship was large, mounting 11-inch guns. Officially a panzer ship or armored ship, it was of the type the British referred to as a pocket battleship. It was the Deutschland-class vessel, Admiral Graf Spee. 
Hitler wanted Britain to agree to a separate peace, but Britain was insisting that he first remove his troops from Poland. Hitler was trying to push Britain to the peace table without provoking them further, so he had instructed his navy to begin commerce raiding on British merchant vessels. However, he had them do so under prize rules, which meant that before sinking a vessel, they had to evacuate the vessel's crew and ensure their rescue. But the Admiral Graf Spee's days were numbered, because the Doric Star had been able to radio its position before it had been captured, and from that information, a British squadron had been able to define where the pocket battleship would go next. Thus, the officers of the Doric Star and several other vessels were locked in two tiny rooms aboard the Admiral Graf Spee on December 13th, when they heard the unmistakable sounds of combat. The Admiral Graf Spee had run into more than a merchant vessel. In fact, Admiral Grashpey was in the first significant naval battle of the Second World War, the Battle of the River Plate, engaged with three British cruisers, the York-class heavy cruiser HMS Exeter, and two Leander-class light cruisers HMS Ajax and HMNZS Achilles of the New Zealand squadron. While the Deutschland-class had been built to outgun any cruiser fast enough to catch it, Captain Hans Langsdorf had initially thought he was being engaged by destroyers. By the time he realized his mistake, he was in a fight with three cruisers. It was a bruising battle. Although their own lives were in danger, Captain Stubbs of the Doric Star and other Merchant Mariner officers reportedly cheered each time the British vessels scored a hit on the Admiral Grash Bay. Exeter was badly damaged, but the Admiral Grash Bay was doomed. A shell from Exeter had destroyed the Grash Bay's raw fuel processing center, leaving her with only 16 hours of fuel. With no friendly port in reach where it could make repairs, the Admiral Grash Bay could not make it home. The captain of the Achilles was surprised when the Grash Bay turned away, thinking the ship could have finished them off with Exeter nearly disabled. In fact, Langsdorff had surveyed the damage to his own ship and determined that it was no longer seaworthy. In a decision still questioned to this day, he made smoke and ran for the neutral port of Montevideo, Uruguay. By the rules of neutrality, a warship was only supposed to be allowed to stay in a neutral port for 24 hours, but Uruguay gave Langsdorff an extra 72 hours. Still, by treaty, if he stayed longer, his crew and ship would have to be interred for the rest of the war. Under orders not to let his ship be interned, Landsdorf, mistakenly convinced that the British had brought an overwhelming force to meet him, took the damaged Admiral Grash Bay to sea and scuttled the ship. The merchant marine officers that had been aboard the Admiral Grash Bay were released in Montevideo. Captain Langsdorf and his crew were to be interred for the remainder of the war, although Langsdorf himself committed suicide on December 19th. But the ordeal was not over for the rest of the crew of the Doric Star and other British merchant vessels because nearly 300 British merchant seamen were still aboard the Altmark, which had been the supply vessel for the Admiral Grash Bay. One of those seamen was William Melville Evans, who was the third mate and navigator of the Doric Star. At first, the prisoners thought that the crew of the Altmark would drop them off with the neutral ship, but they didn't, apparently afraid that if they did, the neutral ship would give away their position. One day, the prisoners noticed that the crew of the Altmark grew excited. They painted the ship, and they made alterations that appeared to be designed to change the ship's profile. The prisoners weren't told, but the Admiral Grash Bay had been sunk, and the Altmark was now on its own. Melville Evans had managed to take a chart from the bridge of the Doric Star before going aboard the Admiral Grash Bay, and while the Germans confiscated all navigational equipment, he managed to keep the chart and an almanac hidden by folding it and stuffing it down his pants. Being mariners, they were able to cleverly use the few tools they had at hand to generally determine longitude and latitude, which they tracked on the chart. For two and a half months, they wandered the Atlantic Ocean, never getting near land. 
going first south and then eventually north, past Iceland, and to the coast of neutral Norway. Norway was in a precarious position in the winter of 1939-40. Norway was of strategic importance to both the Allies and the Germans. Germany was very dependent upon iron ore from Sweden, which was shipped from Norwegian ports. Britain wanted to blockade those supplies. The Soviets, at the time aligned with Germany, were attacking Finland, and the Allies would have to cross both Norway and Sweden if they wanted to support Finland. Grand Admiral Erik Raider of the German Navy saw Norway's shores as the key to controlling the North Atlantic sea lanes and wanted to place U-boat bases there. In short, Norway had many threats to its neutrality, knowing that both Britain and Germany wanted to control Norway and that either may invade under the excuse of preventing the other from invading. The presence of the Altmark was inconvenient, as they knew that it could be used as an excuse by either side to intervene. But the ship, not technically a warship, was allowed to travel through neutral waters. By now, British aircraft had sighted and identified the Altmark, and they knew there were British prisoners aboard. The Royal Navy dispatched a squadron of destroyers to intercept the ship. The crew knew their gambit was risky, with, for example, the prisoners' guards changing from German Navy uniforms to civilian clothes. It's not illegal to carry prisoners of war through a neutral territory's waters, but it does require the permission of the host government, and the crew of the Altmark decided to keep the prisoners a secret because they were afraid that Norway might intern the vessel and its crew. At the prodding of the British, the Norwegian Navy boarded the Altmark three different times searching for prisoners, but every time the German officers of the Altmark told them that they were merely engaged in commerce. In fact, the German sailors would operate the cranes while the Norwegians were aboard so that they wouldn't hear the British prisoners down below, trying to call out to the Norwegians. But in fact, those searches were only cursory. The Norwegians did not want to find prisoners. They had every incentive to let the Altmark pass through their waters as quickly as possible and without incident. The Norwegian Navy even provided Altmark with two Navy escorts, torpedo boats, to ensure the protection of neutral shipping. But the British decided to press the issue. On February 16th, with the Altmark just hours from safe harbor, three Royal Navy destroyers cut off the ship. The Altmark decided to move into a small fjord called Jossingfjord and hoped that Norway would protect them. The commander of the British squadron, Captain Philip Van, conferred with the commanders of the Norwegian escorts, asking permission to join them in a search of Altmark for prisoners. The Norwegians refused and even went so far as to aim their torpedo tubes at the British. But Van was given orders by the First Lord of the Navy, Winston Churchill, to rescue the prisoners, but to limit violence against the Norwegians if possible. As the destroyer HMS Cossack approached, the Altmark tried to maneuver to keep them from coming alongside. Outgunned, the Norwegian vessels remained silent. A boarding party came onto the ship, where the Altmark crew offered a brief and uncoordinated resistance in which eight German crew were killed and ten injured. Famously, the boarding party was said to have called into the hold, The Navy's here! Though William Melville Evans claims to not have heard that line used, even though it became famous in the press. Both Norway and Germany protested what they saw was a crass violation of Norwegian neutrality, but Britain argued that the Altmark had gone hundreds of miles out of its way to travel through Norwegian waters, which would be an abuse of neutrality, and that they had lied about having prisoners on board. In fact, Melville Evans' chart was used as evidence to prove that there were prisoners on board 
all along. And while the legal argument about whether the British acted properly in the Altmark incident has really got evidence on both sides, what is unquestionable is that the Altmark incident moved up the German timetable to invade Norway. Hitler always planned to invade Norway, but commanders later argued that the Altmark incident convinced him that the Allies would not respect Norwegian neutrality and caused him to move up his plans for fear that the Allies would act first. The German invasion of Denmark and Norway in April of 1940 marked the end of the phony part of the Second World War. The official explanation from Germany was that they invaded Denmark and Norway to protect their neutrality from an Anglo-French invasion. So it's always interesting to me to look at parts of history like this because we don't we don't talk about it. I think that you know, from from our position in history, we can look back at World War II, and then after, I mean, ap after 1939, when he invades Poland, uh, or even before that, that everything kind of seemed inevitable. But at the time, I think we have to remember that the real experiences of the people living in it was that it wasn't inevitable. You know, Neville Chamberlain wouldn't have done his uh, diplomacy to, you know, appease Hitler if he didn't think that he was going to be able to succeed somehow. Uh, and, but ultimately, I think that we forget all that and we think, oh, well, war was always inevitable. But I think that we forget that th there was always a chance of a separate peace with England. And this, in that period after Poland was invaded, but before Germany had invaded France, it wasn't 100% clear that this was going to be that, that a huge global war was going to be the inevitable conclusion. And I, th I mean, I think that a lot of people knew, but I mean, was there a chance that, you know, there was a peace that happened at this time and it was another appeasement? I think that there were people who really believed that that's true, that it could have happened that way. I, you know, I think when you look at the period of the phony war, uh, I don't think it was just a Hitler ruse. Uh, I think that, you know, both sides are really considering whether they truly wanted to fight this war. I mean, I, I think I don't think that Hitler invaded Poland in order to draw France and Britain into the war. I think that uh, uh, that he just uh, had set up the imperative enough that the, the fact that they had signed the mutual defense pact wouldn't stop him. So so I, I, it's interesting. I mean, it's interesting. Could it have been avoided in retrospect? You know, that's that's a tough question. But at the time, did you believe that it could be avoided? In fact, did you not really believe that it was a war? Yeah, clearly true. And yeah. you see that in the Altmark incident. You have, you have these merchant mariners that are really rather surprised to find out that they're in a war zone uh, and really rather surprised to have a massive warship show up and, and, and take them. So, <clears throat> uh, yeah, I mean, I think there were uh, certainly here in the United States, which was I still trying to be isolationist, I think there was a, a widespread belief that this was not going to turn into the size of war that it was. And you see that if you go to uh, England or France and you, you're finding, you know, audiences there that that were opposed to extending this war more some of them were pro-german uh or maybe were as anti-semitic as germany or something like that and so you had parties you had you had uh, uh parties that were trying to avoid the war who seemed to think that it was avoidable uh and that's makes that makes the phony war uh, era kind of interesting when they say phony war they really mean that you have the risks of war but you don't really know you're at war and nothing's really going on because no one seems to really have enthusiasm for for war there's a there's clearly a reason why uh when after Poland was invaded, that there was very little, uh, France and England didn't open up a second front, which was yeah. what Poland, <laughs> was, I mean, it's kind of what yeah. Poland had been promised. And, you know, they didn't, and I don't know that the second front was going to save Poland at that point. But I mean, Poland very much believed that it was supposed to. And I think that the fact that the French and the British were still reticent to actually engage. I mean, I think that's indicative that they they believed that maybe war could be avoided. And I mean, some people and yeah. certainly now we can look back and I mean, Hitler had been 
being aggressive all over the place and between, you know, the Sudetenland and uh, with annexing Austria, all of these various things, it seems inevitable that if they had if they had decided, OK, you can have Poland, uh, that, that I mean, Hitler would have continued to move on somehow. He always was. I mean, there there is an argument that says that Hitler had argued when he ran for office or when he was trying to take power that he was going to take back the original borders. And that he had a finite level of territory that he was looking for and that he would have been fine with that. I I find it difficult to believe if you see that how Hitler acts, acts throughout. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's hard to say on a counterfactual level. I think that there's a very strong argument, though, to say that uh, that France and Britain legitimately thought that merely signing a mutual defense pact that that told Hitler if you invade Poland, you're going to war with Britain and France, that they thought that that would keep Hitler from from attacking Poland. Yeah. That was the shocker to them. And when he did, you know, really, when they made that mutual defense pact, were they really ready to go to war? And were they really thinking that was going to happen? And, you know, it, it's uh, it, so, I mean, it's it's interesting because they set that up as a consequence that they didn't think, I yeah. mean, I think it's very clear, they didn't think was, was I mean, they, they were uh, immediately, they'd, they'd sent British uh, uh, soldiers over, not not prepared to fight a war, but to, to start training Polish troops and stuff like that. And they were caught completely off guard. So I, I think certainly one of the reasons for the phony war was that England and France didn't think it was going to start a war. They thought it was going to prevent a war and they were caught with you know surprised uh, and if you look at that i mean the bef went over with uh with uh, uh infantry tank mark ones i mean these uh, they, i mean if you look at the at the equipment that they brought over it's quite clear that britain was preparing for war uh and was not yet prepared and you see that in say the quality of the armor that they sent over yeah. with the original british expeditionary force and uh and so i think i think there's you know a reason too that, that there's funny wars that they were like yeah we were all thinking it'd be a few more years before war you see that in germany too with the kriegsmarine i mean there was a much there was a much wider plan where they thought they're going to have another at least five to ten years in order to build their fleet before they would uh, before they would be going to war uh, and so part of the reason for the phony wars i think that to an extent uh, it, the, the Europe stumbled into the Second World War. I don't, I don't think that any of the three of them, I don't think that Hitler invaded Poland with the intent of picking a war with France and Britain. I just think that he had to, you know, once Hitler made a promise, he can't back off of it. I don't think that that, that France and Britain signed that mutual uh, non-aggression pact with the intent of going to war with Germany. I think they, with the, they started with the intent of preventing war with Germany by keeping yeah. Germany from invading they Poland. They were bluffing, essentially, and, and, and saying, hey, you know, try yeah. us, and he did. Well, I mean, obviously they weren't bluffing because no, they did go right, to war. But I mean, they were, they they were certainly thinking, you know, uh, you know. It, but I mean, it's you know, like your dad saying, you know, don't make me, do, don't make me pull this car over. <laughs> yeah, if you aren't well, you, you might. When the kids keep acting, you got to pull the car over, or you're not a very good dad. But you're like, gosh, I really didn't want to part of the car, pull the car over because you know I wanted to. I, I, we need to get down the road. So uh, yeah, I, I think they were like, yeah, don't do that, Adolf. And they really did not think that he would, and I think they were shocked that he did. Uh, and uh, I think that's why you have the phony wars that you have this period where, you know, they're all trying to figure out and be prepared for it. And, and it makes for, though, an interesting period and specifically interesting in the, in the acts of the Admiral Grush Bay uh, as, as a commerce raider. Uh, you know, once the war gets going, it's very difficult for those commerce raiders to to uh, succeed out on the ocean because, they're, you know, they're being hunted down so quickly. Uh, and uh, that's so it's an interesting period because of the, you know, the the. Uh, the merchant mariners that have been captured were not prepared for that, did not really see what was coming. The, uh, the grash pay is out there kind of on its own, and they don't really know what they're going to do. And then, of course, when the grash pay is, is, uh, is destroyed, then the Altmark is, is stuck, you know, trying to figure out how it's going to get back. And, I mean, it, it all makes for a very uh, interesting story. Yeah. 
Uh, and there were lots of YouTube videos on on the Grash Bay, on the Admiral Grash Bay, and the, the Battle of the River Platte. And, and uh, I I really wanted to uh, uh, River Plate, I guess it's. I I really wanted to take something a little differently, and I really wanted to write this from the perspective of those mariners that were captured, uh, because that's such an interesting story for them. I mean that they, that they have no idea really what's going on. They didn't really realize even they were at war when they were put in the ship. Uh, and they, they were actually incredibly resourceful. Uh, and most of their officers had been taken away. And so you're working mostly with the, you know junior officers on merchant ships that are shoved in the hole, hold of, a, of, a, of another merchant ship. And, and it's really a compelling story. And of course, it's a compelling rescue. And, and you know, very arguably, Britain broke the, the, the rules of neutrality. They violated the rules of war in order to engage in the rescue. You have to admire the resourcefulness of these guys that are captured. Because the fact that they kept track of where they were, I mean, there was, I, mean, yeah. I guess they had not a whole lot to do sitting, in, sitting below decks. Yeah. But I, I mean, they, they were able to do something that was useful. And well, how, how many mariners alive today could navigate at all by the stars, more or less stand under a grill yeah. and see that amount of stars and remember where you are? I mean, these, these guys are extraordinary and they were they were masters of their craft and they were resourceful and they didn't they, you know, they didn't just, you know, go along with it. Uh, and uh, that's that makes for a compelling story too. Yeah. their, you know, their whole story all around. And I, you know, I think we've talked about the the benefit of hindsight now that we it takes a lot of the there was a lot of tension at the time because of this concept of are we are is this is this going to be the war? I mean, they've been preparing. Everyone kind of thought that there was a war brewing in Europe for for years into the you know into the 1930s, and so the the whole thought of is this it finally is that there was a lot of tension because some people, I mean, there had been other points where it seemed like maybe this was it and then it wasn't. And so you're at this, you're at this mm -hmm. point where there is all this tension, but it's oddly peaceful. Technically war is, you know, already declared, but you, you don't know if it's going to, if it's going to stick or if this is just one more uh, political thing going on. But you wonder the, the Germans were trying to, I mean, they were trying to affect diplomacy at the time. And their hope is, you know, if we show that we can be really successful at commerce writing and stuff, that that might have some impact on, say, diplomacy of, of them, Brit France and Britain deciding this isn't worth getting into it. And so I wonder, you know, yeah. ultimately the, the Graf Spee does not turn out that well for Germany. They lose, I mean, they end up sinking a pocket battleship, uh, which was, uh, Germany really couldn't afford to sink pieces of their navy yeah. at this point. Well, but I mean, at the point at the at the outset of war, Germany knew that the Kriegsmarine was unprepared, yeah. and I think they pretty quickly figured out that their hope was going to have to be in submarines, uh, because they knew they needed more time to build su surface ships. So, I mean, I, I think that they sent those commerce raiders out on you know one way missions, and they knew they knew they were eventually going to get tracked down. Uh, but also, I mean, the Grash Bay, which was by all accounts just a beautiful ship, and I mean a very modern ship for its time, y you wouldn't think that a commerce raider operating at that time was going to materially affect the economy of Britain. So they really were just trying to show that, you know, this, you really don't want to go to war because yeah. this is what's going to happen. Uh, and it's interesting because they're, they're able to act in a way that was in some ways kind of more, more noble uh, because it was the phony war than it would become later in the war. So they were, you know, these, you know, the, the captain was literally apologizing for sinking these beautiful ships. Uh, and that's, you know, later in the war then they're, you know, they're, you're sinking everything that you can find. Yeah, no apologies. So it's, uh, it, it's interesting. And yeah, it didn't work out. I mean, the story that I tell in this one, and I think there's a compelling story for it, is that the uh, the Grash Bay really was crippled, that the, the, the damage to her fuel refinement plant meant that she could not have gotten back to Germany by any standard. I think the more traditional argument that you're going to hear is that it was that they, they 
were mistaken about the size of the British fleet, then they didn't have to scuttle Grash Bay. Uh, I, I think that you know, more and more uh, we're coming to the conclusion that, that reasonably and, and rightfully assessed uh, that the ship was finished, that it was futile to continue fighting because they couldn't stay in Montevideo and they, they couldn't make a run for it. Anymore. And they weren't going to be able to uh, make and, repairs. Yeah, they couldn't. It, it's something you couldn't you couldn't repair in 24 hours. You couldn't repair at sea. And without that fuel refinement, you weren't going to be able to make it home. And so at that point, you know, do you do you go down blazing? And, you know, he, he wasn't willing to sacrifice his crew to do that. And maybe that's because it was early in the war. Uh, maybe later in the war, maybe he, he would have done that. Do you, do, you, uh, so, do you think there was a chance of with what they were doing with, say, the Grash page? I mean, do you think there was a chance that that could have impacted the British uh, diplomacy, that the British might have decided uh, that, that these were, or was it really just, I mean... We know that there were significant, uh, not not insignificant numbers of people and people in power who were very much trying to avoid war, trying to use every explanation to avoid war, who simply did not want to repeat World War One, who had sympathy for the German cause, uh, or thought that the that things were negotiable. I mean, remember how close the ties were between the you know the, the royal families, uh, and so there were you know there were a lot of people in England who had close ties to people in Germany. So I, I think that there was realistic reason to. Think think that those powers could become ascendant so i mean yeah again it's a it's it's a counterfactual yeah. you know one of those things that you know what if sort of things in history but was it unreasonable for the germans to think that during the period of the quasi-war that they could have convinced the french and or the british that they didn't really want this war uh, i i think it was not an unreasonable thing to try to do i mean they i think they probably realized it was unlikely they certainly continued preparing for war but I mean, I I don't think it was impossible, and I, and I think that, you know they were probably you know playing the hand that they were dealt. But I mean, what more was the Grash Bay going to do? It's true. It goes down like the Grash Bay did, or it goes down like the Bismarck did, or the Sharn Horse did. I mean, the, you know, the fact is that the surface fleet of the Kriegsmarine was outnumbered. Yeah. yeah. Um, I I think that when we when we move on to you know after the Grash Bay is sunk, and then we have the Altmark incident, it's really interesting because like we talked about with Iceland, it brings that question of, was it possible for them to remain neutral? Norway was stuck. Uh, it, mm. <laughs> there was there were no good choices for Norway to make because I mean, Norway doesn't want to be invaded by either power, but ultimately yeah. the, Norway sitting there with the possibility of being invaded was enough of a risk that, I mean, they were they were uh, they were essentially being threatening without well, I mean, having to do anything. They had they had to act. Uh, I mean, because otherwise that was going to draw them into war. But acting was going to draw them into war. Yeah. And it's quite clear when you look at it because Norway. I mean, there's points where they could have inspected the ship, and they essentially kind of chose not to. It's it's pretty clear that what Norway really wanted is for for whatever was going to go down not to not to involve them. They just was hope were hoping it would yeah, be it, <laughs> off of their hands because uh, because they knew. I mean, Norway knew that if if England in, invaded or if Germany invaded that they weren't going to win that fight. Well, and they uh, and so they could have because they have that moment where the Altmark goes in there and the Norwegians are like, "Oh, well, we'll, you know, we'll you can't come in here, British will shoot." And then they don't. But their choices were pretty crappy yeah. there. Like, if they do shoot, yeah. <laughs> if they do shoot, I, I mean, I think England takes that as all right. <laughs> Well, yeah. uh, well, I mean, England wasn't going to take no for an answer. England have an overwhelming force there. I mean, what, you know, are you going to stand on principle and what does that really do for you? And, you know, if they had, would that have kept Germany from invading? I don't think so. I mean, in fact, I think it might have, have more convinced Hitler that England had designs on Norway and might have convinced him more yeah. to invade. And so uh, what they didn't have an option. 
and and they did you know what they could do. It, I mean, gosh, when they were playing their hand, they you know they had a pair of twos. I mean, that's that's, that's what was going on. And you know, they threw down their twos, and and you know, Britain threw down a, you know a pair of queens, and they're like, okay, no, you no, know. this isn't going to work out for us. Uh, and I, I mean, I think that ultimately in World War II, and I mean so, some of the movement into modern wars. Uh, I, I mean, to some extent, war was always war. And this, Europe had had these ideas that there were that there should be rules and that we should behave in certain ways. But I mean, throughout all of time, it's, those rules were not always followed. Even when there were supposed to be rules, I mean, there were places where people looted and killed in ways they weren't supposed to, and we were always, you know, exacting revenge for this action or that action. But when, when we get into World War II, we really see that the uh, these rules can be awfully flimsy especially when it comes to total yeah. war and it makes it made you wonder could could war have really have any rules at all and i think that i mean to some extent we found out that it's not always going to yeah I mean, yeah and what you find out i mean you you follow the rules and as much as you want them to follow the rules too you, you find that in say prisoners i mean yeah. in, in general uh, the uh, uh the germans and the british and the american we treated prisoners reasonably well because we knew they held prisoners too uh, and and you see that in Japan, where you're, it's so dishonorable to be captured that Japan didn't put thought into uh, protecting their own POWs by protecting our POWs. So so you can see, you know, the the purpose uh, when you talk about the rules of war ends up being selfish, which is what it is in war. And I I doubt that there's any true rule of war that any of the powers weren't uh, willing to uh, weren't willing to violate if that you know meant success in the war. And you you see it because all sides did some, yeah. did some awful, awful things. But honestly, if you look at the United States after the war, we had gotten onto such a war footing that we were we were I, I might get in trouble for this, but I mean our military and our CIA and intelligence services and stuff were just doing crazy stuff, uh, and they could get away with it because we were on the war footing. And we decided, well, you know, once it's war, then there's no rules. And and I, I think I think it's not unfair to say that there's some stuff that we did that maybe came from that from that. You know, without trying to be overly critical, or you know, be, yeah, I try to keep a neutral position in in in, uh, in history. No, I mean, is is there any rule of war that so sticks that someone's not going to break it in war? You know, no. And you see that in the Second World War. You see things that are not that are supposed to be rules of war that were that were violated. You know, wherever it it meant and made a difference and was convenient. But you do see, for most of the nations, a sincere effort to best they can follow the rules of war. Largely because, I mean, partly maybe because they, there's still humanity in war, but largely because uh, they know that the other side is thinking the same thing. And, you know, it's, it's to your own protection that you, uh, that you follow the rules of war because then that makes it more likely that your enemy will if, if you would put in that position. That's, I mean, that's a good argument. And you're right. I mean, for the most part with POWs and stuff like that, they did follow at least, you know, some semblance of, <laughs> of uh, the yeah. rules of war. But it also did, I mean clearly with with norway i mean people were willing to cross those lines if they had to and that you could yell about it diplomatically but especially as we get further and further into the war it stopped and it stopped being about diplomacy yeah it is <laughs> it is well i mean you, you can look at britain's thinking there i mean are they going to let 300 men just go into you know internment for for the rest of a long war that they can prevent it over, you know, what seems to be at that point a traffic violation. Yeah. 
uh, and especially when they simply have the force there to to do something about it. And was there any entity in existence that was going to hold them to that standard? I mean, they knew the United States was not going to, as much as the United States was supporting them at the time, was not going to abandon them over rescuing the, the sailors. And so, so I, I, really, what you find out is like it's it's like any other rule. You look at the consequences of breaking it, and if the the advantages outweigh the consequences, then there's a very good chance that you're going to break the rule. You know, and uh, that's and when you think about it from the other uh, perspective, too, is that you want the other side to to respect it as well. I mean, that's that's less. It's not like there's prisoners here and you're mistreating prisoners. I mean, did did the British really sit and think through, well, where could the same thing be happening to us? And, and, you know, we would want the the Germans to have acted or behaved or whatever. So I think they just saw they saw little consequence. They saw overwhelming force. They certainly knew that it was important to morale. I mean, they, they understood the importance of the situation and they, they made a calculated risk uh, and you know they they took some you know loss some consequence for that but i mean they knew that the advantages would outweigh the consequence and you know how it, rules are you know no rule is 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 absolute and rules have various importance and, and how big was this this, this wasn't murder it was a, yeah. it was a traffic well, ultimately our, our rules are uh, made up <laughs> you know we we yeah. put these yeah, rules we... in place and yeah there's but what if it actually came down to killing Norwegian sailors? What if we had to sink a Norwegian ship in order to take it? Uh, and, you know, we, it wasn't pushed to that situation. Uh, I think at least Norway was afraid that they would have sunk the ship because they, they you know, they, they, and it would have been fruitless for them. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like they, you know, their ship was large enough to do anything about yeah. it. Uh, and so I, I think certainly, I mean, it, it, do we know what the British would have done? I know that the, uh, I, it seems quite clear uh, that the uh, the Norwegian Navy uh, at least credibly believed uh, that England would be willing to commit an act of war to rescue that ship, well, and so didn't. And how committed they were they to it? I mean, this is we we, we did an episode on outlaws the other day, and you know when the when the lynch mob comes and the deputies there protecting the guy that they think is guilty of the crime. I mean, how much will you really throw your life on the line? Are you like, well, you know, I'm not supposed to let you do this? Yeah. So you know. Put your gun on me or something so I can put my hands in the air. But I mean, so how were there any sailors there in Norway really wanting to risk their life uh, over making sure that German got to keep these merchant mariners in this boat? And I would imagine that they weren't overly committed to it. So, I mean, they were they were stuck in a where they had to oppose it. But I mean, you know, what, what were they going to do? And I, I doubt their heart was in it. I have to say, I doubt that there was a, a really, really powerful feeling on any of those ships that say, I really want to. This is what I want to lay my life down for. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed these stories of forgotten history, and if you did, you can find more on our YouTube channel at The History Guy, History Deserves to be Remembered. We will continue to release podcasts every other week, so stick around if you want more podcasts on forgotten history. You can also find us on our website, thehistoryguy.net, as well as on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Rumble, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.